Welcome to the Semi-Interesting Podcast, where we explore some of the unique legal issues in the global semiconductor industry. My name is Nathaniel Lusak. I'm an IP attorney at the law firm of Hodgson Russ and one of your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Morris. I'm an IP attorney and director of intellectual property and products at Pure Storage in Mountain View, California, and I am one of your hosts. Thanks for joining another episode of the Semi-Interesting Podcast. I'm joined today with my co-host Elizabeth and our special guest today, Paul Keene, over in Ireland. How's everyone doing today? Great. Really happy to be here and so happy to have Paul with us. Um, I've worked with Paul for probably over a decade at this point on international filing. Of course, I'm a U.S. attorney, says Nathaniel, but Paul is our expert over in Europe and the Unified Patent Court and Unitary Patent on the are fast approaching and Paul has been making me aware of this for years. Quite excited about some strategies that um, he suggested to use as things got closer and, and we're just starting to implement those. So this seems like the perfect time to really talk about what's going on and um, where we can get to in the future. So Paul, can you just give us a little intro of who you are and, and um, why you're here today? Yeah, my name is Paul Keane. I'm a European patent attorney and partner with a firm in Ireland called F.R. Kelly. Our firm is very, very old. We started off in 1927, so we're almost 100 years old. Uh, even though we're, we're based in Ireland, majority of our work is before the European Patent Office. We also have a branch that operates focusing on the UK and, and obviously in Ireland. Uh, since, since Ireland joined the European Patent Convention, uh, F.R. Kelly has been representing clients before the European Patent Office. So to date, we have about handled about 10,000 European patent application. So we consider ourselves to be European experts. By degrees in electronic engineering, I worked a lot with semiconductor companies. I, my initial job was in a university where I did a competitive analysis and infringement analysis uh, for semiconductor companies. And that's where I met patent attorneys. And that's why I chose a career in patent attorneys. I figured it was a, a lot more interesting to choose a, a career as a patent attorney as opposed to being a lab technician. It was definitely probably more lucrative. So yeah, so that's me. Uh, I'm happy to answer any questions you have on the UPC. All right. Awesome. Well, you know, it's uh, you're the perfect person to talk on the semi-interesting podcast since your experiences is specifically in uh, advising some of the semiconductor um company. So, uh, but before we get too far in the weeds, can you give our listeners, I know we do have listeners even that aren't attorneys, some background in, you know, what is the unitary patent and how does it differ from uh, the bundle of validations that has been the standard practice up until, you know, this new process, which is kicking off this summer? Yeah, sure. So there's been terms that have been bandied about like the classical system and the new system, but effectively, the European Patent Office handled the central application. And when the European Patent Office granted the patent, it was necessary in order to enforce the patent to validate in the countries where you wanted protection. So even though the European Patent Convention extended to 38 countries, there was an action at the grant stage where you had to select which countries your patent was valid. And that's why we refer to it as a bundle of, of patents. Often, that stage was quite expensive because it required translations. It also required different patents. All of us had different requirements. Some had different official fees. And it, it was quite, in order to get a large footprint of protection, 
you had to to significantly pay for uh, a lot of translations and a lot of additional costs, which was prohibitive. So a lot of companies chose the main jurisdictions, and the main jurisdictions would be France, Germany, uh, and and the Netherlands and the UK. So that's the real classic. You know, it was a central application, but at the grant stage, you had to select where you validated it. And there's a lot of problems with cost. It's aside from that, once it, you validated it, they became national patents. And in order to enforce it, you had to litigate in each national jurisdiction. Again, which made European litigation very expensive. And then to revoke the patent, you you have to go and revoke it in each jurisdiction. So it made Europe not a very attractive jurisdiction for, for, for litigants. That's why I guess a lot of companies would chose some of the main jurisdictions and focus on litigating in Germany, maybe in France and Netherlands and the UK. So they became the main, the main jurisdictions. So the, the new system was we tried to address the problem is that there's going to be a single unitary patent and also a single court that we could enforce your patent across all the countries that were signed up to be part of that system. So I guess if you look at it, it's like we're trying to mirror the US system. Perhaps before, if you could imagine all the different states having different patent systems, but now we're trying to mirror that system, I guess, for in Europe. Single patent, a single court to enforce. And the idea is that you have a single renewal fee to help to reduce costs and to make it more attractive jurisdictions to litigate it. Well, it's, I, I can definitely see why having 50 different patents in the United States <laughs> would cause a problem. So the, the analogy you gave, uh, seems quite apt. Um, wh- why? And I know because I've had a dozen or so different client alerts from various European law firms, including some from yours in the past few days alone, there's a lot of strategy that goes into why you would choose the old system versus the new system. And and some of the ideas I've heard are that costs, similar to what you mentioned, litigation, having a centralized court, whether or not it's good for licensing. I mean, what, what are the overarching objectives that someone should be evaluating when they're looking at this new system? Are there any others? Well, I guess, first of all, you got to realize that your existing European patents that had been validated will automatically fall under the new court. So there is going to be a situation where there's going to be two systems in parallel, where any patents that have already been validated, for example, in Germany or France or the UK, would fall under the jurisdictions of, of the new unitary patent court. So the the difficulty that for the companies have to make initially is that, you know, do you, you want to rely on national courts now for your existing portfolio or should you opt out of the, the new court until you know that there's a body of case law that we can see how, to, how they handle their cases? The majority of applicants or from our experience are opting out their traditional classic European patents because there is really little advantage to having your your existing portfolio in the new system because ultimately you're still paying the same renewal fees. If you validate in four countries, you still pay four renewal fees. It's just the jurisdiction of the court that, that changes and you can always opt back in and you're in charge. But you can only opt out while there's no 
action happening on a file. So if somebody files a revocation action, you lose control. You can no longer opt out. So by opting everything out initially, you, you put the provide you in control. And really, you got costs. There is the costs are the same because you're paying the same renewal fees. So that's what majority of clients are looking to do initially. So there's been a huge bustle of activity with opting out for the last, because the the period for opting out began only 14 days ago, and there's been a lot of interest and, and people are reviewing their files now, putting everything in order. So that, that's for the, the, the existing, but then you've got to look at your new cases, your new files are about to grant, because effectively, it's still the European patent office that will grant your patent. It's at the grant stage where you make a decision whether you will use the classical and validation in multiple jurisdictions or whether you would have a unitary patent by selecting a unitary effect. And that's to where you have to make almost like a case-by-case -case decision. What is your long-term goal? And it is, it is very difficult. You know, I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did. But I guess... If you don't have a crystal ball and you can't predict the future, I think the best thing to do is have a portfolio that's in both, your, in the, in both systems. And we're seeing already a flurry of activity with people filing divisional applications. So increasing their portfolio, especially, especially their important applications. And we're also seeing some companies that want to use the unitary system, even though it doesn't come into effect till the 1st of June, you have the option to delay the grant of your European patent. So uh, currently, if you have granted patents that are about to grant, the notice of intention to grant, or we call it in Europe, the notice of the Rule 71 treaty communication has issued, you can request to delay that grant so that it would take effect from the 1st of June. So you have the option to have a unitary effect. So you have a lot, there's a lot to, to consider. You know, there's one hand, there's costs, there's other hand, uh, we need to consider your, you know, perhaps your strategy, is it offensive strategy or is it defensive? You know, is renewal fees your, your priority or is, it, is litigation your priority? Or maybe there's a combination of, of both. Obviously, there's a huge advantage for, for, you know, traditionally, as I said, the main jurisdictions where people validated were France, Germany, the UK. There are three jurisdictions, and uh, probably the Netherlands. But with the new system, initially, it will cover 17 countries. So by, if you do avail of the new system, perhaps if licensing is a big focus, it gives you more territory that you could, you know, extract, increase the fees. Uh, so that needs to be taken into consideration. So a lot of people are initially on renewal fees, but you need to consider perhaps renewal fees, one aspect, and the other aspects you need to consider is, are you offensive or defensive type company? So, Paul, specifically on that renewal fee or, or the, um, the numbers, I know you've talked a little bit about the goal of this program being that there's a more uniform coverage uh, price point that makes more sense than the, the classic system um, used where the, the price point for going into all of these countries would have, would have been more extreme. What is the tipping point? that just from a cost perspective on, you know, the fees and the old system versus the new system is the, is the moment when it makes sense from a fee perspective to, to choose by unitary patent. Yeah, that's a very good question, you know. I had read multiple different articles with very different statistics. Like if you look at the European Patent Office website, who are obviously very pro of promoting the system, 
and anything by the European Commission are very pro, you would see that they do an analogy where they're suggesting that the renewal fee was set at four, equivalent to four countries, the four major countries, which originally would be France, Germany, UK, and uh, uh, I guess Italy. You know, so then they did their analysis, uh, they would suggest that the tipping point is four. But the reality is, some of the major jurisdictions aren't part of it initially. The UK aren't part of it because of Brexit. Spain aren't part of it. Uh, and, and Poland aren't part of it. So it does depend on what countries you, you do select. But, you know, if you do, we've done some role analysis. If you select France, Germany, and the UK, and you compare the classical versus the, the unitary, you know, the new system over the life of PAP is probably 40% more expensive. So I think the tipping point in reality is probably seven, seven or eight countries. Uh, but it does depend on which countries you select. And it also varies in how the period, you know, the period, most, uh, you know, renewal fees are paid for about 10 years only and people opt to, to not pay them after your technology maybe has somewhat expired. So, you know, you got to look at over a period of five, 10, 15 or 20 years. So to give it over 20 years, I think it can be misleading. I think there's a lot of argument by uh, the European Bad Office has suggested four. I think it's, 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 it's only considering official fees. If you're paying four fees, you're also paying service provider for four for different countries. So there's additional administration costs. So I, I would suggest, you know, seven is probably a, a good ballpark figure to, to say that's, that's the tipping point. I have a kind of related question there. So you were just saying, I knew um, UK wasn't in because of Brexit. Um, I wasn't aware that Spain wasn't in. These initial countries, I think you said there were 17. Do you expect to see more? And if more join, is that going to change the price point? Or is the price point the same and you kind of get the additional ones for free? Um, what's the what's the process yeah, there? Yeah, the, the point point will be the same. The unitary renewal fee is set. So additional countries will join. And, and at the moment, there's three, four countries that have signed up and it's their intention. The difficulty is that some countries, uh, their legal systems require them to have referendums such as in Ireland, we we require a referendum. So every person gets a vote on the, the system of bringing it into, into whatever you want to transfer power from the Irish courts to the, the, the new court. And so so while we have, Ireland has signed up to, to this agreement, we do have to take a referendum and that does, that takes a little bit more planning and it, it also becomes political. So there, there is an issue of Okay, you can people can use referendums as a protest vote. So governments have to be very careful when to select, uh, when to hold a referendum to ensure that the voters are going to use it as as a protest against something else. And that's a difficult, that's a very very difficult issue. So in Ireland, for example, we need a referendum. No particular date has been set. It it could be, you know, some suggesting that it might even be November this year. Others are suggesting it might be May next year. But if the intention is that Ireland will will join, and the intention is that twenty four other countries or twenty four countries in total will join. But there are countries like Poland, uh, Croatia, uh, Hungary have signed, but you know for political reasons there might be a delay. But the cost is going to be the same as new countries uh, join it. Switching away from costs and the map you were talking earlier about the upc the the uh 
unified patent court. Obviously, we don't really know what to expect, but um, do you have initial thoughts on on what the UPC is going to be like? Other than I mean, right now, it's you have the initial courts, one of which needs a new home, if I understand correctly, and then. But from there, what what would a what would a semiconductor company or another patent owner what should they expect with the the UPC? Yeah. Again, uh, I wish I had my crystal ball. I'd be very wealthy if I could answer with certainty. But I will speculate, you know. And the course, the the the, the court is made up of court of first instance, which is made up of uh, a central division and local divisions. The central divisions, as you mentioned, one was supposed to be located in London, but because of Brexit, that needs to find a new home. And the other two jurisdictions or locations are Munich and, and Paris. So for Munich was to get mechanical engineering, technology, and uh, London was to get more life sciences and chemistry. And I guess for, for the tech world, for electronics and software physics, the central division would be uh, so that, that's that that's uh, of interest, you know. Uh, but I don't know. I've been studying this very very carefully for the last last year, particularly with a group of people all across Europe. And I think there's a, a hundred and fifty of us having a discussion recently, and there was a poll done of what to expect. And <laughs> all we can say for certainty that nobody knows. The difficulty is. That you know, if you take infringement, the law that's applicable it depends on the national law of where the applicant at the date of filing has a place of business or was a residence. Okay, so so for EU country that for EU applicants that's pretty straightforward, but for maybe for US corporations that don't have a place of business in the EU. The, the law that's applicable is national law where the European Patent Office has its headquarters, which is effectively another way of saying German law is applicable. So, for example, your central division could be Paris, but the, the national law applicable would be German law. But the intention is that every country that signed up to the agreement, if they amended their national law to incorporate the new agreement, the new structure, so that national law, in theory, should be the same whether you're applying German law or French law or Irish law. That's the whole intention. And the intention would be, I guess, a harmonization between the different systems where national law would evolve. But, you know, that is the probably main issue is that we don't know how, how they're going to harmonize and how do you apply a system where national law applies depending on your address and, you know, is there an advantage of, for example, if you wish, and you're a say, U.S. corporation, and you wanted a unitary patent, and you didn't have, you didn't have an address of, for for business in the EU. At the time of requesting unitary uh, effect, you could you could voluntarily select a country which which uh, where you you had an address for, for uh, uh, to take a which national law you you could apply. So you could say. I volunteer to to select, say, France or volunteer Ireland. And so there might be reasons why people would do that. So they might see that uh, different, there could be some more courts more favorable to others, you know, and the interpretation of how do you, you know, like, 
how do you interpret national law across, you know, initially 17 countries and how do you harmonize that? Likely it's going to be harmonized based on the, you know, the, the history of litigation in Europe, the majority of patent litigations, Germany, France, Italy, Netherlands, you know, the only common law country that's left in the EU is Ireland, you know? So uh, you have civil law and common law, you know, how do you harmonize all these decisions? So the question is, you know, nobody really knows, and that's why everybody's prepared to sit on the fence, you know. But I do think it will be, eventually it will be a success. Okay, the will is there. It's like the European Patent Convention. It started, it has to start from somewhere. But it'd probably take, you know, at least 10 years to build up a body of case law. But I would advise anybody to, to consider filing divisional applications and, and play almost both systems to a degree. Obviously, you can't have, you can't double patent if not allowed. But you could push the limits of double patenting uh, as far as, as you can, I would suggest. And I trust the initial decisions will be on double patenting. So you'll probably repeat these that, that you know, <laughs> that will be our next debate. What is double patenting in Europe? But let's wait and see what the UPC says. That's what I would suggest. I know one of the things you and I have talked about before, Paul, is with our old patents, where we already chose a particular set of countries because we had to under the old system. If we use the new system and we enforce uh, in the new court, we can still only enforce in those countries that we previously selected. Whereas um, if we uh, have a new patent that it really is a unitary patent, then we can enforce in all the countries. Uh, yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's correct. You know, that's an important point. Dennis, you know, I, I, some of my U.S. colleagues didn't appreciate that, you know, effectively, like people were wondering what we would like, even if the old classical patents are validated, they said, well, I only, I only validate in Germany and France. Now we got an opportunity to maybe go to the new system and have 17 countries, but that's not, you can't do that. It, 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 that's not how it works. The court that, that applies will be the, the, the new court, but it's still only enforced in, in the country where you validate it. So it is a part decision to make, you know, that, you know, which countries are you going to validate in? Are you going to keep an eye on what your competition are doing? Are they are they filing divisionals? Are they are they um, you know are they playing both playing both systems? I think that's probably the safest bet. Yeah, I, I certainly think it makes a lot of sense to um, you know potentially have a boot in both camps at the moment, especially since it's possible to to do that with divisionals, as you were saying, right? And I think there's also a little bit of a concern that. If you get invalidated in the new system, you get invalidated everywhere as opposed to um, country by country, which is what the old system would be. So having a, some that are still just country by country and would have to be invalidated piecemeal and some that are in the new system um, sort of allows you more more flexibility. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, for that is a major concern is the central revocation. But then I, I would go back to the main countries where companies used to validate was say France, uh, Germany uh, and the UK. The UK you still have to use the, the old system to validate the UK if you want protection in the UK. So then if you're only validating three countries you still have to use the UK so now you know the France and Germany. So is central revocation a big issue when you only have two countries uh, as, as opposed to uh, I think it makes a big difference if you typically like a pharmaceutical company maybe 
you know, could could validate in 38 countries, you know, because the, it, 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 the cost of, of their invention, the cost of bringing it to their market, to get a market authorization, it, 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 you know, could be billions. So it, it is worth it. But for tech companies, the, the number of countries that were validated are quite small. So then if you traditionally had a small number of validations, then I don't think the fear of central verification it, it is it's such a big thing, yeah, I would have thought. And so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that actually feeds exactly into my next question, which is that, you know, we're not in pharmaceuticals, you know, and this this particular podcast is really focusing on the semiconductor markets. So, you know, for the semiconductor markets that are more like just, you know, Germany, France, uh, Great Britain, Netherlands, and, and others, what does this mean for those core markets, people that were used to just playing in those sandboxes? You know, how, how does this new system um, change that for the semiconductor market? Yeah, so... You know, I think, you know, you know, the litigation in Europe, the the central locations were particularly Germany. And I think over time, it might take five, it might take seven years, but I would think it will, it will move away from Germany to the new system once we get a, a body of caseload that, that is consistent uh, and people are, that are, are happy. So in that regard, I think you, you, you just, if you just validated in Germany and litigated in Germany, I think, you know, you should be considering making sure that you have some arsenal in the, in the new system. And I think a good way of doing that is, is of filing some divisionals and keeping your options open. But I do think the litigation in Europe will change. Uh, so I think it's important now, even, you know, with your, with anything that is granting, you know, should you be filing the visual today? Should you be delaying grants? Should you, do you need to consider all this, you know? And, and I guess the other question is you do have to budget your, your renewals. You got to make sure you're not going to get a surprise. You know, I've seen some different statistics, you know, the cost of the industry patent could be significant and you might have increased your unknowingly increased your renewal budget by 70%, which would give somebody as a provider. So it was his job is to handle accounts. So you have to budget for this. You have to say what is your what is the IP strategy going forward, and maybe maybe the old system is going to stay there for the next ten or so years, but the life of a patent is, is is twenty years, so from filing date. So therefore, I think you, you need to have maybe a bit of a long term view and maybe have the crystal ball. What if this is a, a, is a, is a success, and I don't have any uh, patents in it? Uh, Would it be at a, a disadvantage? But other than that. I suppose you do have to consider if you're a, a, a U.S. semiconductor company and you want to, to select a unitary patent and you don't have a place of business in Europe, when you're requesting the unitary effect, you have to, you should you have an opportunity to voluntarily select a place of business. And which jurisdiction should that be? You know, are you happy because you're you know Germany? Are you happy to say I'm still happy with Germany? Or you know maybe Ireland is an important jurisdiction for you? You know, like even even though we're com we're common law country, there's a lot of tech companies. There's a lot of fabs. It, it's a jurisdiction that you know uh, is more important than based on who's located there, uh, as opposed to the the size of the country or the gross domestic product. So I think there's a lot to consider. Um, and, and so you you've gone through this and explained really some of the risks and why it's important to diversify. Is there a reason that anyone right now 
during the transition period should jump in immediately and just say, you know what, forget the old system. I'm looking forward to what's coming. I want the UPC. It sounds great. Is there any advantage to doing that? I think you mentioned earlier, you could always opt in later if it looks better than what you have. Hey, that would be for, for the classic system, you know, for your, your previously already validated, but going forward for your new patents, you know, you can only opt in what you validated. So if you want to do unitary coverage, then, you know, it, it, it is something that you should be looking at. Obviously some companies want to shape case law. Some companies have the budget to do that. Somebody wants to say, I'm taking the lease and this is your opportunity to take that lease. This is your opportunity to get your lawyers to say, well, I want the case law favored in a certain direction. And, and it all depends on, on who, who you are, what is your budget and what is your ultimate goal. Like there is a huge advantages, of course, having an injunction across the 17 countries as, as opposed to one country, you know, get, uh, getting uh, uh, better options to for more authority to license your technology. So, I mean, there's revenue that can be made that can far outweigh the cost of renewal. So I think that's what people like us, patent attorneys, we can be very focused in, in looking from, uh, you know, uh, the side of obtaining patents, but we can also look at the business side, you know, this could be attractive for generating new revenue and that could really offset the cost of, of, of the renewals. Shaping case law for certain companies, it's going to happen, you know, some, I'm not going to mention who you would expect, but you would expect the same players that would be active in the U.S. to, to be also active in, 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 in the new system, you know, and I suppose we have to consider also patent trolls, you know, ever since this system has come into play, I think when I started, there was very few patent trolls in Europe, but ever since this system came into the, to, to discussion. I've seen more and more patent trolls setting up in Europe. So I think their intention is to, to is to avail of it. Um, so I suppose you just, you got to proceed with caution to, to, in that regard, you know? Yeah, I've been concerned about the troll problem. And I certainly see it from, from my company's perspective. I see the advantages of potentially um, being able to have a, a, you know, threat, at least a threat of litigation um, more broadly in Europe, pushing for, you know, licensing more broadly. And then I can see how um, a troll would be interested in asserting for the same reason in this new court. What can practicing entities and semiconductor companies do to prepare or protect themselves against that impending risk? There's different requirements, you know, for, 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 you know, it, it, uh, unintentional infringement and, uh, Say in Germany, if you, they're obliged, anybody that brings a, a product to the market or import or sales has to do a search to ensure that they're not falling foul of other people's IP rights, you know? So it's unclear if, if the German philosophy will be applied across the, the, the UPC, but it could, it could very well be that as good practice, it may be following the German model where companies should be doing these searches, making sure they're not falling foul on other people's intellectual property rights. And if you don't do that, you have effectively intentionally infringed because you didn't conduct that search. I think 
in, in Germany, if there's infringement, my understanding is that like 99% of it, you're, you're, you are considered to, uh, intentionally infringed because your search should have found these things when you, you conducted them. So I guess, you know, is that a practice that's done, for example, in the US? Um, and if it isn't, maybe it's something that, like, it's likely that the German model, you know, it is likely to dictate that was thought initially, especially when the UK is not part of it. And therefore, I guess you got to make sure that you have done these searches, perhaps, uh, and maybe there is, uh, it, maybe that's a, a, a different issue for you guys in the US, but I think it's, it's good to, it's good to know that, you know, will there be more damages if you don't do those type of, of searching, you know? Well, Paul, thank you so much for bringing an international flavor to our semiconductor podcast today and giving us a reminder as to how nice it is here in the United States to only have a single set of laws yeah. and a single court system uh, and a single patent for the whole country. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I guess we're all moving that way, though, in Europe, right? I mean, there's this transition period, but ultimately... What's it going to be, Paul? Like fourteen years, or twenty-one years, or some amount of time? Yeah, well, the, the initial and... period is set for, for seven years, but uh -huh. the adoption to renew it for further seven. So, I mean, it, again, it's going to be at least as I said, seven. It's probably going to be fourteen years, uh, and at that stage, you know, there would be a big body of case law generated, uh, and you would expect then that uh, perhaps we would be deleting the light in in in, in, in patent law in Europe and. and litigation and uh, and all these harmonization between 38 countries legal systems will will be something that uh, would be a thing of the past and we don't have to worry about it and I don't have to worry about it and I don't have to talk to 150 people around Europe <laughs> to see how they operate and but yeah so that as I said a lot, lot will happen in the in the again if I wish I had my crystal ball to to, to see what's going to happen but the fact that they've given themselves an option for 14 years, they probably will take it. Well, it's certainly fascinating. It's uh, it's a very interesting time, I think, probably to be a European patent attorney. And uh, even over here in the U.S., it's fascinating for me to think about, you know, what we're going to do with our European portfolio. Yes, yes, it's sort of fascinating. And I know I've been preaching that this was coming for about 10 years and I kind of finally, finally happy that it is coming and people think I'm not crying uh, wolf. <laughs> Because I think I warned everybody about 10 years ago and then we had different, we had Brexit to cause a delay and we had like a challenge in the German courts and seeing you know, those. So we're still not there. Yes, we get, <laughs> well, hopefully June 1st will be the, the kickoff days. Uh, it could be delayed further, I guess, hopefully not. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Paul. It's really been very interesting. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Semi-Interesting Podcast. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube. And if you enjoyed the episode, we always appreciate five-star reviews. While we talked about legal issues, none of the information shared during this podcast is intended to be legal advice. If you have any questions about information we cover or ideas for a future episode, feel free to contact me or the other attorneys at Hodgson Russ. You can find contact information at www.hodgsonruss.com.